This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden, a podcast devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. I'm your host, Nick Batzig, and this is our 20th episode. And as we noted in the previous episode, we are releasing lectures from the Jonathan Edwards for the Church Conference that was held at the end of February 2014 at Durham University. We're very pleased to release to you in this show Bill Schweitzer's lecture, Faithful Ministers Are Conduits of the Means of Grace. Bill was one of the organizers of this conference, and we are very excited about the forthcoming volume of lectures from the conference that Bill organized that will be published by Evangelical Press under the title Jonathan Edwards for the Church. And so we hope that you enjoy now Bill's lecture, Faithful Ministers are Conduits of the Means of Grace. Well, as Jerry alluded to in his paper, there is a great deal of confusion with regard to the nature of the gospel ministry in our day. Models of ministry that not so long ago would have been regarded as absolutely aberrant are being held aloft as examples for the church to emulate. But of course, very often the reality doesn't match the hype of those things. Ministers sometimes find that when they're floating free of the purposes and the parameters that an all-wise God has given to his church, that they are left exposed and they are easily burnt out and very often that they have no lasting fruit to show for all of their frenetic activity. And far worse, far worse than that, God's people then find out that having someone who seems to do everything under the sun but the one thing that he was called by God to do is almost as bad as having no minister at all. And they're left in the words of Matthew 9, 36, weary and scattered as sheep having no shepherd. And in such a situation, the writings of Jonathan Edwards come to us like a a bright light in a dark place. So Edwards was very clear what faithful ministers ought to be doing. And in the ordination sermon, Sons of Oil, Heavenly Lights, it's already been referred to, he said that ministers of the gospel are those that are improved by Christ as means and instruments of the spiritual good of his people, conveying the golden oil to the candlestick or of communicating grace to his church. Or as I summarize his thoughts here more succinctly, they are conduits of the means of grace. That's what ministers are. Now, of course, Edwards did not get to this clarity about the nature of the task of the minister in a vacuum. I think it was because he was so clear about some other things that directly relate to the minister's task, the minister's job, that he was able to be so clear. Edwards believed that the universe was created so that the triune God might communicate his knowledge, love, and joy to elect angels and humanity for his own glory. And the way he does that is through means. Means. He uses means. I, I was at a, a conference not so long ago, and, and someone said that Edwards had no place for secondary means, and it, they couldn't be any more wrong than that. 
Edwards had a tremendous place. Sometimes you read about his, just how high a view of the sovereignty of God that he had. You might be under that impression. But the reality is he had a huge place for means, as we've already heard. And God uses these means, primarily the word of God, the sacraments, and prayer, to deliver his communication to his people. And so given those things, it makes perfect sense to Edwards that the job of the minister is to convey the means of grace to God's people. And in turn, I just wish to convey some of Edwards' thoughts on the matter to you. And I will unashamedly be reading some long quotations, so much of the purpose of this of this uh, conference is indeed to introduce you to the writings of Edwards, and I commend them to you in that that vein. Well, let's um, start with that larger picture. Briefly, God communicates himself. Edwards outlines the grand plan of creation in an early miscellany, 332. He says, The great and universal end of God's creating the world was to communicate himself. God is a communicative being. This communication is really only to intelligent beings. The communication of himself to their understanding is his glory. And the communication of himself with respect to their wills, the enjoying faculty, is their happiness. God created the world for the shining forth of his excellency and for the flowing forth of his happiness. And so throughout all of creation, throughout all of redemptive history, God is communicating himself to us. And he does it in the words of the Westminster Standards. Edwards was, of course, of the Puritan tradition, and so it's relevant to to mention these, for his own glory. That is the larger purpose of that. He is communicating himself to angels and men for his own glory. And elsewhere, Edwards makes it very clear that the subjects of this communication, as I mentioned, are his elect people. Now, this communication is not merely notional. It's not just head knowledge. Edwards was famous for uh, making sure that we wouldn't fall down that road, Um, but consists of God's own knowledge, love, and joy. From this it views, quote, another way to be a thing in itself valuable that there should be such things as the knowledge of God's glory in other beings and a high esteem to it and love to it and delight and complacence in it. This appears, I say, in another way, as these things are but emanations of God's own knowledge, holiness, and joy. And the idea, again, as has been mentioned, is that these things work together. They're not working in isolation. They work together. You need to have knowledge of God because you, don't know, you can't love someone that you don't know. And if you do know something true about God, then you should love him more because he is infinitely lovely. You ought to love him. And when you know more about God, then you're going to love him more. And when you love him more, then you ought to enjoy him more. And that's, that's the eternal upward spiral, that as we increase in these things throughout eternity, we come closer and closer, but we never quite attain to God's own condition of infinite knowledge, love, and joy. But the idea is that God is constantly and forever communicating to us to bring us closer to his own state of knowledge, love, and joy. So he communicates himself to us. And the way that he does it is by, as I say, using means. He uses means to do that. The Westminster Larger Catechism says, What are the outward means whereby Christ communicates to us the benefits of his mediation? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicates to his church the benefits of his mediation are all his ordinances, especially the word, sacraments, and prayer, all of which are made effectual to the elect for their salvation. 
So it's the word, sacraments, and prayer. And the order is significant. In the context of speaking of the means of grace, Edward says, and had a, a similar order in what he said, as the word of God, so the sacraments that he's appointed. But he spoke of the scripture as the great and principal means of grace, for by it the others have their basis, but the reverse is not true. Scripture stands by itself, but the sacraments do not stand by themselves. They are given, they, they're infused with their, our understanding of what they are by the word of God. And likewise, our prayers have to be informed by the word of God, by the promises in particular that are found in the word of God. Now, I'll mention just one other aspect of the means of grace, and that is the Sabbath. Edwards tends to think of the Sabbath is not itself as a means of grace, certainly an ongoing appointment by which we rightly expect to receive the means of grace. And I'm, I'm concerned to relay this material here because in our day there are many evangelicals who think far too little of the Christian Sabbath. And in the context of God communicating himself, God meeting with his people, God giving of himself through the means of grace, here's what Edwards says with regard to the Sabbath. As the Sabbath is a day which we are especially to set apart for religious exercises, so tis a day wherein God especially confers his grace and blessing. As God hath commanded us to set it apart to have to do with him, so God hath set it apart for himself to have to do with us. As God has commanded us to observe the Sabbath, so God observes the Sabbath too. He stands ready then, especially to hear prayers, to accept of religious services, to meet his people, and to manifest himself to them on this day, to give his Holy Spirit and blessing to those that diligently and conscientiously sanctify it. That men should sanctify the Sabbath as we have observed is according to God's institution. God, in a sense, observes his own institutions. That is, he is wont to cause them to be attended with his blessings. God's institutions are his appointed means of grace. He has promised his blessing with his institutions. Exodus 20, 24. In all places where I record my name, I will come unto thee and I will bless thee. And for the same reason, we may conclude that God will meet his people and bless them, waiting upon him not only in appointed places, but times and in all his appointed ways. You see how it is the complete package there. It is appointed place, appointed time, appointed means. These are the means that God has given. And so the Sabbath, indeed, if not a means of grace itself, is the appointment by which we expect to meet with these means. Well, that is the backdrop then. That is the the theological backdrop then for Edward's understanding of ministers. Now, I should say that Edward's... Some, somewhat improperly sometimes spoke of ministers as themselves means of grace. That's, uh, in fact, what he called his grandfather and predecessor at Northampton, Solomon Stoddard, in his sermon on Jeremiah 6, which was called Living Unconverted Under an Imminent Means of Grace. But when he was being more careful and more technical, what he, I think, was meaning to say uh, were that ministers were conduits of the means of grace. And I'll relay the same quote as was said earlier. But in his wisdom and mercy, he is pleased to convey his light to men by means and instruments and has sent forth his messengers and appointed ministers in his church to be subordinate lights and to shine with the communications of his light and to reflect the beams of his glory on the souls of men. 
I want now to go through a few sermons. Most of them are, in fact, ordination sermons, as Edwards is speaking about the nature of the task and of the particular pictures, the particular types and, and functions that he thinks that ministers ought to be concerned with. And the first one is that of a watchman. And this is the ordination sermon for a man called Jonathan Judd in the new church in Northampton in 1743. Yes, this was, in essence, a church plant. It was a daughter church plant of the Northampton church. As the, as the, uh, the people, the populace expanded, they had, in essence, a church plant. And this was the occasion for this sermon, the great concern of a watchman for souls. And the first thing he says that a watchman, a minister, does for the people is that it enables them to fulfill their ultimate purpose for existence. This is what he says. God commits men's souls to ministers to keep and take care of them for him that by their means they may answer their end, that is their purpose, in glorifying him. God has made all things for himself. He has created them for his glory, but more especially those creatures that he's endured with understanding as he has done the souls of men. It is by them that God has his glory from all his creatures, as they are the eye of the creation to behold the glory of God manifested in the other creatures, and the mouth of the creation to praise him and ascribe to him the glory that is displayed in them. The other creatures glorify God passively and eventually as God glorifies himself in them, as they are the subjects of the exercise of his power and wisdom in their creation and in those events which are brought to pass in his disposal of them. Thus God glorifies himself in his works that are manifested in the irrational and inanimate, that's the animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, creation, in the view of his rational creatures, that he is made capable of beholding and admiring them in adoring, loving, and praising them for him. And what he goes on to say, it is of, of ministers to interpret God's communication. He conveys these things in order that men might glorify God in what they see, primarily through the scriptures, but all things even the creation itself through the lens of Scripture in which we, we fulfill our task given to us by God that we see these things and we glorify him for them. Now, of course, that's, that's one way of looking at it. In a different perspective, ministers enable or bring men, uh, elect people to redemption. And now in this grand affair and to this great purpose of an escape from eternal misery, in the obtaining an everlasting glory, Christ has committed the precious souls of men to the care of ministers that by their means they may have the benefit of his redemption and might obtain that which he has suffered so much to procure. Christ knew that notwithstanding all that he had done to procure life for souls, they would need much care to be taken of them and many means to be used with them in order to their being indeed preserved from eternally perishing and actually brought to the possession of life. And therefore he has appointed a certain order of men whose whole business it might be to take care of immortal souls. And into their hands he has committed these souls and has entrusted them with the ordinances of his house. And by the means that he has provided for their salvation, that nothing might be wanting that they need for their furnishing for this great business. He has, as it were, committed to them his goods and given them, in some respects, the keys of his store and treasury. To them are committed the oracles of God and the treasury of the gospel. So notice particularly that he has appointed a certain order of men whose whole business it is to take care of immortal souls. It's a reminder of the idea of vocation. It's a reminder of the idea of why it is that ministers are set aside from other things. 
Why does that churches pay their salaries so they might be set aside from these and their whole business in life to take care of immortal souls? Elsewhere, Edward says, by the way, that there are two kinds of persons that are given to Christ and appointed and devoted to God to be his servants, to be employed with Christ and under him in his great work of the salvation of the souls of men, and they are angels and ministers. Now, this does not make ministers great any more than it does angels. In fact, some of you may know that Edwards speculated as the reason why Satan fell from, great, from his situation, that Satan fell from heaven, was because he rebelled against the idea that he was there and all the angels were there to serve the redemption of men. That seemed, in Edwards' idea, that it seemed that this was beneath the dignity of these angels. So it does not make ministers great. It doesn't make angels great. They are servants, serving someone else. But of course, uh, this is obviously no casual affair, but of the greatest importance. Well, moving on from that sermon, um, which he likens ministers to watchmen, the next one I want to look at is as he likens them to looking glasses. Now, 2 Corinthians 3.18 was a very important passage for Edwards, and just to remind you what it says, But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even by the Spirit of the Lord. And this where Edwards explained the core of how this all happens, how it is the work of sanctification happens, how it is that God makes us like him as we behold the spiritual image of Christ, that we're more and more transformed into the image that we behold. But what do the words as a glass mean? Of course, it's a comparison with the situation in the Old Testament where things are covered by a veil and it's, nothing is very clear. But what, what is the glass? What are we beholding? By what means are we seeing Christ? Well, Edwards takes this in two senses, and the first, of course, is Christ is the image of God. We behold the glory of God as the face of Jesus Christ, who is the brightness of God's light or glory, as it were reflected, and is the express image of the Father, the perfect image of God, as the image in a plain and clear-looking glass is the express image of the person it looks into. And that is the only way that the glory of God is seen by his church, for he is seen in no other way but in this perfect and, as it were, reflected image. For no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son of God that is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him, John 1.18. And he is the image of the invisible God, Colossians 1.15. And that is the way, therefore, that we are, this is the glass, the image of Christ. But beyond that, Edwards goes on to say this, we behold the glory of God as look, in a looking glass in another respect, and that as is we behold it, by the mediation of the outward means of our illumination and knowledge of God, viz, meaning, in, in other words, Christ ministers, and the gospel which they preach, and his ordinances which they administer, which serve instead of a looking glass to reflect the glory of the Lord. When men read the Holy Scriptures, there they may see Christ's glory as men see images of things by looking into a glass. So we see Christ's glory in ordinances. Ministers are burning and shining lights, but they don't shine by their own light, but only reflect the light of Christ. They that are called stars are held in the right hand of Christ in Revelation 1. And as they are the the mirrors that bring to light Christ's glory to the view of the church, there are lights set on the golden candlesticks. By looking on those lights, they see light, and they see the light of Christ. 
Tis evident the apostle is here speaking of the light of Christ's glory as ministered and communicated by ministers of the gospel and ministers of the spirit, which is that light and glory as we shall show. And so he goes on to speak of how it is that Paul is speaking of this light being reflected, this light being shown. For God who commandeth the light to shine out of darkness has shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And there, in 2 Corinthians 4, 7, they are spoken of as the vessel which conveys the treasure. Now a vessel is to the treasure that conveys it, as a glass is to the light that it conveys. And so these images come together. That This is how God is showing the image of Christ. Yes, we are being transformed not by the image of a minister, but by the image of Christ. But the glass by which we see him, the glass through which we see Christ, is the means of grace being conveyed by faithful ministers. The third sermon that I think is useful in this is the Sons of Oil Heavenly Lights sermon, which I've mentioned. I've already mentioned his summative quote, uh, which says this, And I will treat with a particular regard the ministers of the gospel, for as he has been observed, the officers spoken of are those that are improved by Christ as means and instruments of the spiritual good of his people, conveying the golden oil, the candlestick, in communicating grace to his church. This sermon being uh, in Zechariah chapter 4, and the idea of the golden oil being conveyed and poured out to others. This is what ministers should be doing. And thus, the design or the office of the minister, Edward says, the communication of the golden oil or divine grace to God's people is more especially what appertains to the office of ecclesiastical officers and ministers, it being the original and grand design of their office and the work and business that they are devoted to. Ministers of the gospel are said to be ministers of the spirit, which is the very thing signified by the golden oil. He saw it as obvious that oil was a, a type of the Holy Spirit being poured out. And even as they had the image of this uh, golden oil going through the, the golden tube um, being spread to, to make light, that this is the Holy Spirit, that ministers are used as a conduits, as conduits for the Spirit himself, as the Spirit is to be found in the, the means of grace and gives meaning and makes efficacious those means of grace. So it's in the design, the very design of the office of minister, but it's also in the fulfillment of these ministers that, that they are communicating spiritual good. That's the idea. We mentioned how God himself is a communicative being. That is what Edward's core idea of the universe is about. God is a communicative being. Therefore, there is this universe that we live in. And ministers, likewise, should be communicative. Another thing that is taught in this text is that ministers ought to be communicative of spiritual good. The olive branches are represented not only as constantly receiving the golden oil from the tree, but constantly communicating it to the candlestick. Not that ministers are able to bestow this precious gift of divine grace in their hearers of themselves, but they are to be diligent in the use of proper means and endeavors in order to it. They should be, as the apostle says, didactikoi, apt to teach, lovers of the souls of their hearers, earnestly desiring and laboriously seeking their spiritual good. And here again we see those things coming together that grace, God's grace and spiritual good are not so far from being radically opposed from diligence that these things work perfectly together. It is of the essence of the work of the ministry that we should be diligent 
and seeking the spiritual good of our people. And of course, all this, the the fruit that comes from it, the actual communication of good, it is only possible as ministers use the means that God has appointed. Edward says, The last thing I shall observe taught us in this text is that ministers, in their endeavors for the good of their churches and congregations, should use the means of God's appointment. These are the golden pipes through which these olive branches convey oil into the golden bowl of the candlestick. Ministers should preach the gospel of Christ and not some other gospel instead of it, nor should they pervert the gospel of Christ. When God sent Jonah to the Ninevites, he told him he should preach the preaching that he bid him. Ministers should not preach their own word, but the word of Christ. They should communicate to their hearers the pure, unadulterated word of God, and not be as those who corrupt the word or add to it their own notions and vain imaginations, or teaching for doctrines the traditions of men. And they should declare the whole counsel of God without adding or diminishing, and should administer the ordinances of Christ as he has instituted them, without mutilating or adding to them any human invention, or in any respect changing them. If it's going to be in accordance with God's work, if they're going to fulfill this honorable task, if they're going to convey spiritual good, it must be in accordance with the means that God has appointed. He goes on in this vein that we should be examples to our flocks of all Christian holiness, of every amiable disposition and practice, that we should be communicative, earnestly and laboriously seeking the good of precious souls, being willing to spend and be spent for them. That we in our work use the means of God's appointment and them only, communicating to our hearers the unadulterated milk of the word and administering the ordinances which Christ has appointed as he has appointed him. The mission is Christ. The message is Christ. And the method is also Christ. All of these things are of his appointment. And we can expect blessing in no other way. We do not have God's promise on other means. Now, some specifics in as we turn to, I suppose, in Edward's in Edwards' terminology, the use or the application of these things, some more specifics of that. And very specifically, that ministers ought not to preach their own wisdom. Um, Edwards lived in a time of the ascendancy of the Enlightenment, and particularly in rationalism. And of course, the idea then, and it's not much different today, is that if it's not rational, if it doesn't make sense to us, if it's not something that, that immediately strikes us as, as reasonable, and sometimes we, we don't mean logical. Because let me tell you, everything that Edwards ever said was logical. Uh, it, it wasn't that. When we say reasonable, we mean it's, it's something that we don't quite have a... T- if it's unreasonable, it's something that we react against as we receive it in our heads. And what he says is this. Ministers ought not to preach those things which our own wisdom or reason suggests, but the things that are already dictated by the Spirit of God in Scripture, the very quote that Jerry mentioned earlier. That is, they're not to preach those things that would seem right to their understandings if their understanding were left alone. But in their preaching, they ought to rely on what is revealed and discovered, ready in their hands, by an understanding infinitely superior to theirs. And this revelation, they are to make the rule in their preaching. That was a point that was constantly being missed by the rationalists. And, and they coming up with something that seems more reasonable, seems more rational to them, is that we have already received a communication from the most rational, from the most intelligent being that could possibly exist. He is infinitely wise, 
far, far beyond our wisdom. And the arrogant sin of sinful, foolish man in saying, I know better than Almighty God. I know better than all-wise God. But no, we should submit to this revelation that he gives to us. And beyond that, they should convey themselves God's truth and utter humility as stewards conveying the thing that is given to them. And he's speaking now to the man he was uh, ordaining in this uh, ministers not to preach their own wisdom but the word of God. And he says this, To the person that is to be set apart to the sacred work of the gospel ministry this day, Sir, I would now humbly and earnestly recommend to you that holy book which God is about to commit into your hands as containing that message which you are to deliver to this people in his name. God gives you this word which is his word to preach that and not the dictates of your own reason. You are to preach the dictates of God's infinitely superior understanding, humbly submitting your reason as a learner and disciple to that, renouncing all confidence in your own wisdom and entirely relying on God's instructions. I cannot imagine of a more complete rebuke to the whole spirit of rationalism than that. And what it, the core of that, the core of that message is humility, because that is what faithful preaching demands. You cannot come to the word of God picking and choosing as you might wish. You come as a humble learner. It doesn't matter what titles we might have, and we have many titles here among us, doesn't matter what title we have. We come as humble learners receiving from the hand of God that which we are to convey to his people. Related to that, the second aspect of these more specific things, I would say, is that we preach in full dependence upon God. And, God, and, and Edwards would not have us to forget that, yes, we're speaking about the means of God, and it is crucial that we, we stay with the means of God, and that is what we use. But these are the means only it is of God to make use of them. Tis of God that the redeemed do receive all their true excellency, wisdom, and holiness. And that two ways, viz. as the Holy Ghost, by whom these things are immediately wrought, is from God, proceeds from him, and is sent by him. And also as the Holy Ghost himself is God, by whose operation and indwelling the knowledge of God and divine things and a holy disposition, and all grace is conferred and upheld. And though means are made use of in conferring grace on men's souls, yet tis of God that we have these means of grace, and tis God that makes them effectual. Tis of God that we have the Holy Scriptures, they are the word of God. Tis of God that we have ordinances, and their efficacy depends on the immediate influence of the Spirit of God. The ministers of the gospel are sent of God, and all their sufficiency is of him. Second Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in earth and vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. And their success depends entirely and absolutely on the immediate blessing and influence of God. And you see, by the way, the, the reason why he brought up Second Corinthians 4, 7, that it might be seen that it is of God and not of us. And if it was our own wisdom, if it was our own methodology and our own message, who would get the glory for all that? So that theoretically, again, if you could come up with some means that would fill any church anywhere in the world... Due to your cleverness, because you've come up with a very clever message and a new methodology, who would get the glory for it? You would. God wouldn't. What's the purpose of the universe? To glorify God, right? You have just undermined the whole purpose of the whole thing. It, that it might be of God 
And therefore, the success of these means entirely. Now, this is a, it's not just, uh, no, don't use anyone else's means, your own means or someone else's, because then you or they get the glory instead of God. It is also even when you use God's own means that it is of God who makes use of them. We don't make use of them mechanically or formalistically, but God is the one who makes them efficacious. That's why there is no such thing as merely going through the motions in our, our ministry. The heart of a faithful minister is to walk in utter and complete dependence upon the supernatural blessing of God. And his prayers and that of the people must reflect that. We must reflect the reality that we really know that if we go up there apart from God, nothing is going to happen because God alone can make these means to work. I would also say that these things ought to be done with appropriate affection. If you know something true about God, as I've said, and you're not affected by it, it doesn't make any difference to you. You remain indifferent towards it. Uh, It doesn't make you love God. You have misused that knowledge. And likewise, if you're a a means by which God is communicating his knowledge to God's people, he's communicating his means of grace to them, and you're not affected by it, that's a problem. That's a problem. If you're doing it dispassionately, if it's just an academic exercise, then you are are exemplifying, rather than the way it should be, uh, a, a, a disjuncture between head and heart that should not be there. And that's why Edwards argued against the rationalists and the formless of his day and ours when he says this, If it be so that true religion lies much in the affections, hence we may infer that such means are to be desired as have much a tendency to move the affections. Such books and such a way of preaching the word and administration of ordinances and such a way of worshiping God in prayer and singing praises is much to be desired as has a tendency deeply to affect the hearts of those who attend those means. Such a kind of means would have formerly have been highly approved of and applauded by the generality of the people of the land as the most excellent and profitable and having the greatest tendency to promote the ends of the means of grace. But the prevailing taste seems of late, strangely, to have been altered. That pathetical manner of praying and preaching which formerly would have been admired and extolled, and that for this reason, because it had such a tendency to move the affections, now in great multitudes immediately excites disgust, and moves no other affections but those of displeasure and contempt. And we cannot forget that Edward's Arminian, as he called them, uh, of course, this, this Arminianism was for a whole uh, locus of various uh, grouping of theologies that these people would have, but one of the, the ways we can describe his opponents were that they were formalists, and that the whole idea of God acting in any kind of direct and immediate way was so counter to their gut instincts and again, the religion of this time, as, as Jerry has as well pointed out, was of deism. That was the, the root religion of the intelligentsia and the culture as a whole, of, of deism, of a mechanical god operating as a machine. And the machine just works. And if you're praying or not, what difference does it make? The machine works. And if you're deeply affected, if, you're, if you are receiving God's word and it means a difference to you, the machine just carries on. And so in these, these churches where Edwards would call them the fashionable divines taught, the ones that were affected by the spirit of age, their preaching was mechanistic. And their administration of the sacraments was mechanistic. And the idea was something almost like the Roman Catholic ex opere operato. The means of grace were thought of, here it is. I am, I am reading my sermon, and this sermon should work. 
What, who needs to pray? Um, here's a, here's the, 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 uh, the sacrament. And you receive this sacrament and it does its job. And Edwards is saying, no, it is the means of grace. But we only, it only works because God makes it to work. And they must be administered in a way that is appropriate, uh, both in our heads and our hearts, to these things. Bring it now more uh, particularly to our situation, I would say that faithful ministers ought to make the ordinary means of grace their great business. I, I say this again because there are many, many models out there, um, some of which are probably exaggerations of legitimate functions of ministry. You know, the uh, minister as pundit, that's an exaggeration of the minister's right teaching role. Minister as celebrity, that's probably an exaggeration of the love that the people ought to have for their ministry. And But other ones, I don't know where they got the idea, to be honest. Uh, have you heard of art ministers? There are. Um, there are. There are there are men who call themselves art ministers. And there are many other such things. Great amount of confusion. But what I'm saying is that God's ministers, appointed by Christ and his church, ought to make the ordinary means of grace their great business in life. Now, that's very true in terms of the ongoing preparation in Scripture. We, we heard that quote already, that ministers should be very conversant with the Holy Scriptures, making it very much of their business with the utmost diligence and strictness. And you can imagine Edwards... Uh, comparing the situation to some of the craftsmen that were in his congregation and how much they cared about their tools and they knew about those tools and they could do something with those tools. And if you're a minister, this is, this is your tool. You should be very conversant in Holy Scripture and know it well and be able to wield it rightly. And we know that it's beyond mere knowledge. It is of putting these things together and understanding the true orthodox system of theology. <coughs> And in terms of their delivery to the, of the means of grace to the people, Edward says this, that in, this is speaking of John chapter 2, the servants represent gospel ministers. They have a command from Jesus' mother, i.e. from the church in her public, this is, you know, he's, he's speaking typologically, from the church in her public authority to do whatever Jesus commands. Whence we may note that we have a way to a plentiful effusion of the spirit with his word and ordinances is to be faithful in their work. That's the way to do it. They're to fill up the water pots of purification. That's all they can do. They can, in the use of the ordinances of God's house and appointed means of grace and purification, simply fill these things up and then depend on God to make something of it. That's the idea. God hasn't put everything into the hands of of ministers, certainly not. But the things that he has put into our hands, then that is the things that we ought to be doing. Faithful ministers, I say also, if we should make the means of grace our great business for these reasons, that we should forsake all other means. Edwards points out in all of this that we can rightly expect God to bless his means. It's his means. It's his wisdom. He's decided that this is the way it's going to be, and therefore we rightly expect that he's going to bless it. Now, again, you could come after and say, you know, Bill, I've seen this work. There is a, a wonderful new measure that you haven't heard of, and uh, it is working. It is wonderful. And I would say, you know, that, that's wonderful. That, that's great. Uh, but I have no promise from God that it is. So you might say it works today, but the funny thing is with new measures and new methodologies is that they don't last very long. We sometimes laugh at yesterday's methodology, right, don't we? 
You know, when Finney came up with the anxious bench, I, I sometimes think that that's still why people don't sit in the front row, because they're leaving room for the anxious bench. And it worked really well as a tool of psychological manipulation back in the 19th century. It was great. You just bring, you'd, you'd kind of compel them to come here, and then they'd be here, and then you'd, you'd, you'd manipulate them into saying the, the sinner's prayer and all the rest of it. And we look back and we say, this is primitive and this is pathetic, because that's what it is. It was something of man's devising, and along with everything else, it goes in the dustbin, the rubbish heap of history, and we move on to other things. And today's new and cool is just is yesterday's bus ministry or, or whatever it might be. But we have, no, we have no promise from God on these things, but we do have a promise from God with regard to the ordinary means of grace. And therefore, I would urge us all to forsake other means besides the ones that God has given. And finally, I would say that ministers should see the great privilege of their calling. Why is it? Why is it that we sometimes turn away? Why are we tempted to turn away to other things? I can't reach into the heart of the men who do this. I can't reach into your own heart. I, I only know my heart. And I would say sometimes it's because we don't see the privilege that the office represents, and so we want to be something else. Why, do we want, why are there art ministers? Because they, they envy artists for certain things. And why do we have ministers as CEOs? Because they envy CEOs and the privileges and the responsibilities that they have. And you can go on and on and on the list of ministers who want to do this and that and the other because they don't see something inherently wonderful and beautiful and honorable in their own calling as ministers. They need to hear things like what Edward said to the young man taking over that church. Consider, dear sir, how great an honor he does you whom God the Father has made head of the whole universe and Lord of all things to the church, that after he is provided for the salvation of souls by his dying pains and precious blood, and the Father has committed to him all power in heaven and on earth, that he might actually bestow eternal life on them that he died for, he should call you to be a co-worker with him, and should commit precious souls to your care, that you might be the instrument of bringing them home to him, and bringing that to pass with respect to them, for that which his soul travailed in the agonies of death and the ineffable conflicts with the dreadful wrath of God. Consider, dear sir, how great an honor that God does to you, how great an honor that Christ does when he puts these precious souls into your hands and when he conveys his own precious means, the word of God, the sacraments and prayer, that you might do them good and that you might bring them safely home. Consider that.